Hello, I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan. It's time to turn to the obituaries from the Des Moines Register. From Des Moines, Evan Ethan Hines was called away from home to be with his Lord and Savior on May 1st. There will be a public visitation from 5 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, May 6th at Hamilton's Funeral Home, 605 Lyon Street, Des Moines. A private service will be held at Sheffield Cemetery in Story City. Full obituary may be viewed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. With profound sadness, we announce the passing on April 25th of our loving wife, mother, and grandmother, Marcia A. Feltz, 84, of Bettendorf. Marcia was born in Aurora, Illinois, the daughter of Rudy and Helen Boros Massier. She was a graduate of Downers Grove High School. Marcia attended the University of Iowa as dictated by her father due to the hiring of Forrest Evashevsky, the Hawkeye coach, who would develop Iowa into a football powerhouse. She became a devoted fan of all Hawkeye sports, a football season ticket holder for over 60 years, and attended numerous tailgates and bowl games with family and friends. She earned a degree in education and was a member of the Dolphin Club and Kappa Alpha Theta sorority. During the summer of 1955, she met her loving husband, Clyde Feltz, and they were united in marriage on June 16, 1956, in Ottumwa. Marcia began her teaching career in Ankeny, continued in Bettendorf and Pleasant Valley, and tutored at Project Ready. Marcia embraced life fully, living each day with gusto throughout her life. She cherished her role as a mother and grandmother, teacher, and caring for many. A savvy iPhone user, she kept in constant contact with her family and legion of friends. Amongst her many pursuits, she was an avid golfer who took joy in her golf leagues and lunch dates with friends. As the cookie lady, she delivered bags of treats and legendary special K-bars to celebrate and brighten someone's day. One didn't have to know Marcia very long or very well to become a cookie recipient. She was an honorary mother and grandmother to many. Her magnetic personality, openness, humor, and positivity instantly put you at ease in her presence, swiftly turning strangers into friends. Coupled with her innate kindness and thoughtfulness, this allowed her to impact countless lives, leaving so many with cherished memories. Those left to honor her memory include her husband Clyde, her daughters Christy Krugler and spouse Bill of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Teresa Kuhlman and spouse Kevin of West Des Moines, Susan Fitzgerald and spouse Jay of Panorama Park, and her son Joe Feltz of Mound, Minnesota. Her grandchildren, Jeff Krugler and spouse Amy, Jack Krugler, Andy Krugler, Shannon Kuhlman, Greg Kuhlman, Jacqueline Schwartz-Keller and spouse Stephen and Margot Schwartz. Her great-grandson, Liam Krugler, her sister, Kay Marshall and spouse John of Port St. Lucie, Florida, and her sisters-in-law, Mary Jo Lanschioni and spouse Dick of Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and Ellen Davis and spouse Gary of Cary, North Carolina. She was preceded in death by her parents. A celebration of Marcia's life will be held on a later date. Memorials are appreciated to UI Stead Family Children's Hospital Fund or the University of Iowa Libraries. Online condolences may be expressed to the family by visiting Marcia's obituary at www.mcginnis-chambers.com. Mary Catherine Maloney Manning, known as Mary Kay, from Granger, 
age 93, died Saturday, May 2nd, at the bridges at Ankeny. Cremation rites have been accorded and memorial graveside services will be held 11 a.m. Wednesday, May 6th at Beaver Catholic Cemetery near Granger. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, only the immediate family will be allowed at the service. Extended family and friends may show their support by being present in or at their cars during the service at the cemetery, which will be live streamed on the Isles website. You can go to islescares.com at 10.45 a.m. on Wednesday and scroll to the bottom of Mary Kay's obituary to join in the service. Mary Kay was born in Des Moines on July 5, 1926. She was the eldest daughter of Daniel L. and Benita Maloney. Mary Kay was raised in rural Bondurant and attended high school at Our Lady of Angels, OLA, in Clinton. She also attended Clark College in Davenport and Duquesne College in Omaha, Nebraska. She married Patrick Manning on October 16, 1948, and they resided in rural Granger until his death in 2001. Mary Kay loved entertaining family and friends. All were welcome at her dinner table for a good meal and lively conversation. No invitation required. She was a woman of strong faith and loyal to anyone she called a friend. After raising her children, Mary Kay worked for a time at Parker Games in Urbandale, and she worked for many years as a certified nursing assistant at the convalescent home in Johnston. Mary Kay is survived by four children, Eileen Eimers and spouse Bill, Margie Bassney and spouse Keith, Dan Manning and spouse Bridget, and Jeff Manning and spouse Jennifer. She was preceded in death by four sons, Charles, Brian, John, and Patrick Joseph, known as PJ. She is also survived by a sister, Virginia Miller, and a brother, John Maloney, and she was preceded in death by a sister, Eileen Higgins. Mary Kay leaves behind nine grandchildren and five great-granddaughters that she dearly loved and who loved her very much. She also has numerous nieces and nephews who meant the world to her. We offer our sincere thanks to the staff at the Bridges in Ankeny, led by RN Mike Hobson, who lovingly and professionally cared for Mary Kay during the last year of her life. In lieu of flowers, the family requests that all donations be made to Food Bank of Iowa. Contact at foodbank.com. Iowa.org. Thelma J. Napoulos, age 88, lifetime resident of Wilton, died on Wednesday, April 29th at the Wilton Retirement Community in Wilton. Her death came shortly after she was failing in health and decided not to seek additional medical treatment. Private family burial will take place in Oakdale Cemetery in Wilton. The graveside service will be live streamed on Bentley Funeral Home's Facebook page via Facebook Live. In lieu of flowers or other expressions of sympathy, the family requests that donations be made to the Napolos Family Scholarship Fund at the Wilton High School in Thelma's memory. Condolences may be left online at www.bentleyfuneralhome.com. Born in Wilton on September 26, 1931, to Pete and Hazel Camp Soderos, Thelma's drive and entrepreneurial spirit led her from humble beginnings to become one of Eastern Iowa's most well-known citizens. Thelma was industrious and worked many odd jobs from an early age. Little did she know that a part-time job at the Wilton Candy Kitchen would lead to her life's path. Upon graduation from high school, Thelma married George Napoulos, owner and proprietor of the Wilton Candy Kitchen. Over the next 70 years, Thelma and George worked together serving the public. 
at the Wilton Candy Kitchen, she would entertain visitors such as Gregory Peck, Brooke Shields, Mark Zuckerberg, President and Mrs. Eisenhower, and support Governor Terry Branstad, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, U.S. Senator Mitt Romney, U.S. Congressman James Leach, and many more. She backed local celebrations such as RAGBRAI, Wilton Days, Memorial Day, and Veterans Day, and was instrumental in community business development and assisted the town financially through fundraising and personal donations. A member of the Wilton Historical Society, Thelma was active in the renovation of the Wilton Train Depot and its subsequent listing onto the National Registry of Historic Places. She then listed the Wilton Candy Kitchen on the National Historic Registry as well. In 2005, she published a book, Our Town Speaks, 1855-2005. to This book chronicles the history of Wilton. Thelma supported education and, as a participant in the Wilton Partners in Education program, she offered many programs. She managed the Napolos Family Scholarship Foundation for area high school seniors and was a lifetime member of the University of Iowa President's Club. She was a member of the United Methodist Church, the American Legion Auxiliary, the Wilton Chamber of Commerce, and the Wilton Library Board. Thelma served as president of the PTA and Sunday School Superintendent. She was also member of the American Soda Jerks Association. In 2003, George and Thelma were named the first official lifetime ambassadors of the city of Wilton and served as grand marshals of the Wilton Founders Day Parade. Throughout the years, they proudly promoted Wilton through national and local television appearances and newspaper articles. Above all, Thelma loved her family and enjoyed the time she spent with them. Thelma is survived and lovingly remembered by her siblings, brother Peter Soteros and his wife Beverly, and sister Karen Fishline. She is also survived in loving remembrance by her children, Dr. Gus Napoulos and his wife Jennifer, Dr. Peter Napoulos and his wife Kathleen, Margaret Glattfelter and her husband Richard Middleton and Nicholas Nick Napoulos, as well as three grandchildren, Catherine Glattfelter, Alexandra Napoulos, and Alexander Glattfelter. She was preceded in death by her parents, Peter and Hazel Soteros, Soteros, husband, George, brothers, Gerald Soteros, and Larry Soteros, and by her sisters, Mary Ford and Betty Waite. She was also preceded in death by her loving granddaughters, Amy Napoulos and Megan Napoulos. Thelma will be truly missed by all her family and friends. It's now time to turn to the sports section of the Des Moines Register. The big article on the front page there is Flipping the Script, Icons Reimagine Women's Sports. It's an article by Nancy Armour. There is a illustration along with this article that covers about two-thirds of the page. The background of the picture is a faint um, kind of a... Um, watermark looking image of the symbol for women, the circle with the cross coming down from the bottom of it. That's kind of in a faint painted painted handprint type style. And inside the circle is the background of a raised fist, the imprint of a raised fist. More easy to see is the photograph inside that circle of two women athletes. One of them is Amy Abby Wambach, the soccer player. In the photograph, she has on her soccer jersey and the medal around her neck and a trophy in her raised hand after winning the USA or uh, the World Cup. 
The other woman in the photograph is a soccer player, Jessica Mendoza. She's wearing her USA team shirt and she's wearing her baseball cap, softball cap, and has her right arm back as she's getting ready to throw out a softball pitch. And here is the story from Nancy Armour. Abby Wambach and Jessica Mendoza are getting back into the game. Icons in their respective sports. Wambach is a World Cup and two-time Olympic champion in soccer, while Mendoza has Olympic gold and silver medals in softball. The two are part of a star-studded advisory board for Athletes Unlimited, which is launching two new professional women's leagues. Might just turn sports on its head in the process, too. Reimagining is really important right now. Reimagining what could be possible, Wambach told USA Today Tuesday. When you look at all the sports, especially women's sports, there is so much more potential that has yet to be understood and figured out. This is, I think, a perfect solution. Having already announced that a softball league will begin play in August, Athletes Unlimited now says a women's indoor volleyball league will start in February. A third women's league, the sport is still being determined, is planned for 2022. The sports landscape is littered with failed professional leagues. The XFL didn't even make it a full season before folding earlier this month because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And women's sports have long had to fight the perception that, quote, no one cares, end quote, about them. Never mind that the U.S. women's soccer team was a ratings bonanza during last w- summer's World Cup. But Athletes Unlimited is, getting, is betting that its scoring system will be both a winner with fans and generate widespread interest in women's sports. Players will get points for winning each inning or set. They'll also get points for each of their individual statistics, 10 points for a single, for example, and 20 for a double. When the games are over, three MVPs will be chosen and awarded points. Lineups also change each week, with the top four players in the individual standings each drafting a team. Sound familiar? It should if you've ever played fantasy sports or had to listen to your friends moan about how one player's late fumble cost them precious points. It also will be intuitive to kids who have grown up playing NBA 2K and other video games that rank and value players based on individual stats. Every moment counts is what we say, and it really is going to be true, said John Patrickoff, co-founder and CEO of Athletes Unlimited. There are points on the line for every play that occurs in any of the games in Athletes Unlimited. And I think that's really going to engage fans and really going to excite them. And with stats being updated throughout the games, it's a way to get fans invested without being in the ballpark or arena. There's no small thing given. That's no small thing, given there's no telling when fans will be allowed to watch games in person again. We're going to see everybody trying to figure out how can we now engage fans when there are no fans in the stands? When we're not allowed to have the normal way of playing sports and watching sports, how do we still keep that interest going, Mendoza said. Athletes Unlimited focus, Athletes Unlimited's focus was always on fans who aren't necessarily there. It's to reach a broader view of people who are nowhere near where the venue is and watch and participate from afar, she added. It's already in place. While the uniqueness of the game format was intriguing, it's the opportunities Athletes Unlimited is providing for female athletes that Mendoza and Wambach found most appealing. With a payroll of around $1 million for each league, 
Each player is guaranteed a minimum of $10,000 for the six-week season, with additional bonuses available. Players are also given shares of the league's profits for the next 20 years. The, athlete, the athletes are also given a very loud voice in all decisions the league makes. There will be player advisory boards for each league. In addition to Mendoza and Wambach, the advisory board for Athletes Unlimited includes Kevin Durant and Richard Kleiman, Durant's manager and co-founder in 35 Ventures. That's what's really important, Wambach said, urgency in her voice. This is not just training women to become professional athletes, though that's what it looks like from a very close-up perspective. But when you get a bigger macro perspective, you are able to see we're actually trying to build leaders that can help our Fortune 500 companies succeed, that can help our governments be being run, that can help at these tables where these big decisions are being made. We can see that women are fiercely needed, sorely needed at those tables where big decisions are being made. Athletes Unlimited isn't just starting innovative new leagues for women's sports, it's starting a revolution, one that is long overdue. College Athletes Getting Nutrition Advice. This Associated Press article is written by Aaron Beard. Nevada offensive lineman Nate Brown is doing his best to eat right. Like many football players and other college athletes scattered around the country without access to training facilities amid the coronavirus pandemic. The six foot four, 300 pound rising senior has stumbled a few times in college sports version of Weight Watchers with no in-person classes or spring practices. Maybe I would get Taco Bell because I do like Taco Bell, Brown said, or maybe I'll have ice cream later at night. The meals that are maybe not super nutritious. I've been trying to keep that to one a day. Athletes have been displaced from facilities well-stocked training tables and easy access to healthy snacks and protein shakes. Some are home with family members, while others are largely on their own in off-campus residences. To help them, schools have provided care packages, grocery tips, recipes, and even cooking demonstrations on social media. And nutritionists or dietitians at schools, there are 96 with at least one on staff, according to the College of Professional Sports Dietitians Association, with roughly two-thirds in the Power Five conferences, have consulted with athletes from afar. The challenge is keeping athletes already engaged in makeshift workout regimens on track when it comes to adding strength or avoiding unwanted pounds, even as it remains unclear when they can return to campuses or whether they'll play this fall as the country tries to reopen. For some of them, it's really good that they're home because they do have someone that's still making home-cooked meals for them said Rachel Lukowski, Iowa State's Director of Sports Nutrition for Football. And some don't have that, so it's a matter of, okay, here's how we can help you out here, or what can we do? Nebraska has offered curbside pickup meals for athletes near campus, and Memphis sent 225 care packages containing items such as snacks and protective masks to its athletes in mid-April. Lukowski said Iowa State's care package included protein powder along with bottles allowing athletes to mix their own shakes without a blender, as well as grocery lists with tips for shopping for healthy foods on a budget and what to stash in the pantry. The school also posted cooking tips and recipes such as chicken dishes, egg muffins, and pancakes, among others. Oregon State sports dietitian Tony Langhans has tried similar steps with the school's 
quarantine kitchen series on Instagram. She wants athletes to feel comfortable in the kitchen by making dishes such as overnight oatmeal, stuffed peppers, black bean burgers, or homemade hummus instead of ordering daily takeout meals. It's such a big, important skill to work on that really affects the athlete's overall relationship with food and what they're going to eat when they come back also, Langhand said. So that's what we're trying to push for in doing these demos and trying to give people recipes. Something that's easy to look at and say, oh yeah, I think I can do that. Sometimes quality food can take three minutes. Things have gone smoothly so far for Duke Defensive and Chris Rump the second. He's trying to strengthen his six foot three foot six foot three frame while living with his parents in Knoxville, Tennessee, and has picked up six pounds, thanks largely to his mother's cooking. We haven't even left the house, so all I'm getting is home cooked meals, protein, and all that kind of stuff, said Rumpf, son of an assistant coach with the NFL's Houston Texans. So there's no fast food. I haven't had fast food in, I think, two months now. Washington State offensive lineman Liam Ryan is staying in a house near the Pullman campus with roommates. They've been grilling so much steak, chicken, pork chops, and salmon that they recently ran out of propane and had to get more. The six foot five, 300 pound Ryan has focused on eating vegetables, brown rice, and snacks like beef jerky and nuts. He's also been checking the scales to ensure he's staying near his playing weight. I think you just have to stay persistent on what you do because if you're kind of just slacking and you miss a meal or you don't work out, I mean, that's what they do at the next level, Ryan said. At the NFL, the offseason's kind of by yourself, so you get a little taste of it right now. Still, it's hard to fight every craving for athletes removed from the hour-filling campus routines of weight training, practices, and study hall. Ryan had a strong one for Chips Ahoy cookies. So he picked up multiple packages, then threw several cookies in a bowl with milk, as though eating cereal. Oh, lineman stuff right there, he quipped. Back at Nevada, Brown understands that challenge. He views it all as a test of practicing self-control when choosing what to bring home from the grocery store or picking up takeout from restaurants. And yes, he has succumbed to the junk food temptation. But when he has, he makes sure the next meal is a better one. At some point, everybody's going to come back, Brown said. I think the athletes that were able to eat well and really take care of their nutrition are going to be some of the athletes in better shape and be able to perform better. That's really what it comes down to. Next, we have Randy Peterson's column in the register today. Big 12 power rankings. Purdy is cream of glossy QB crop. Look at Big 12 conference football rosters. Scan last year's individual statistics, and even previous seasons if you must. Your takeaway should be apparent. It's, again, the year of the quarterback. Iowa State has Brock Purdy. Texas has Sam Ellinger. Oklahoma State has Spencer Sanders. Don't forget Baylor's Charlie Brewer and Kansas State's Skylar Thompson and Texas, Texas Tech's Alan Bowman. And Iowa and Max Duggan slinging it at TCU. Him, too. You get my point. Aside from Oklahoma, which has such a reputation that it can just plug in a high-level quarterback at will, and Kansas, which can't, everyone in the Big 12 has a quarterback with at least some starting experience. Throw in the Sooners' heir to the position, 2019 backup Spencer Rattler, and that's nine of the ten teams with quarterbacks 
who have played a combined 190 career games, passed for a career 39,979 yards, and have compiled 289 touchdowns. That's a bunch. That's also a reason Big 12 defensive coordinators will be as busy as ever, devising ways to stop what should be another points-powered league. With that in mind, let's take a look at how the Big 12 stacks up in advance of whenever the 2020 season starts. 1. Oklahoma Sure, Lincoln Riley's team lost significant key players. It generally does. The Sooners, however, always recover, and that's not likely to change. They'll be the conference favorite until proven otherwise, even if the staff must replace running back Trey Sermon, and even though Rattler won't have the high-end receivers the school had in 2019. Keep an eye on this four-game stretch. Home against Baylor versus Texas and Dallas, at Iowa State, and at home against Oklahoma State. That'd be a grind for anyone. Number two, Texas. The addition of Michigan grad transfer receiver Tariq Black adds top end depth to a position of need. The six foot three, 215 pounder comes into the season with 40 receptions for 507 yards and a history of injury. Ellinger's success will be the most important aspect in the Longhorns' quest to, take, to overtake Oklahoma. Iowan Chris Ash, most recently the head coach at Rutgers, is Tom Herman's new defensive coordinator. He's from Ottumwa and worked with his new boss on Paul Rhodes' Iowa State staff in 20, 2009. Iowa State. Some feel Purdy is the Big 12's best quarterback. He'll have to be close to that if Iowa State is to reach the conference's top three. Running back Brees Hall rushed 186 times for 890 seven yards last season. He'll be among the top handful of backs while playing on a team that's not starving for offense. The road slate features matchups at Iowa, Oklahoma State, TCU, and Texas, but the Cyclones get Oklahoma and Baylor at home. Number four, Oklahoma State. Chubba Hubbard made coach Mike Gundy's offseason when last January, when opting for his junior year instead of for the NFL draft. When the nation's top rusher, with 2,094 yards on 21 touchdowns, returns to your program after having options, that's a reason to throw a party. Hubbard and receiver Tylan Wallace are among the top 30 on CBS Sports' 2021 NFL Draft Big Board. Wallace caught 53 passes for 903 yards and 8 touchdowns in 9 games last season. Number 5. TCU the big thing Gary Patterson's team must do is find a passing game. His Horned Frogs had the Big 12's second-worst passing offense in 2019, but Duggan of Council Bluffs played a lot more than anyone expected the true freshman would play in 2019. He's still learning. Number 6, Baylor. No one expects the Bears to do what they did last season, winning four conference games by just one possession and two in overtime. No one expects Baylor to contend for the title, even if Matt Rule would have stuck around to coach another season. At least Dave Aranda, a former defensive coordinator at LSU, inherits a veteran quarterback. Number seven, Kansas State. The offensive line will be mostly new. The running backs are young. The defense won't be the greatest. All's not lost, though. In Chris Kleiman's second season as the coach, it's still going to be a work in progress, however. Number eight, West Virginia. 
Neil Brown had the Mountaineers competitive during his first coaching season. This season should be even more competitive now that quarterback Jarrett Doge has a few games on his resume. West Virginia is a ways from regularly scaring anyone, though. Number 9, Texas Tech. Keep Bowman, the quarterback, healthy, and the Red Raiders could be decent. With him, and Texas Tech likely finishes higher than ninth. Lose him for any part of the season, and no way. And finally, number 10, Kansas. The Jayhawks, in Les Miles' second season as the coach, aren't likely to be any better than they were in his Lawrence debut. The only player about which to be somewhat excited is running back Puka Williams, who had 1,061 yards on 203 rushes as a sophomore last season. Again, that was Iowa State columnist Randy Peterson's column, and he has been writing for the Des Moines Register for parts of six decades. Turning now to Iowa life. The article there is accompanied by a photograph of the giving tree in Deb Siggins' yard. It's a large green spruce tree, the bottom half of which is decorated with what look like ornaments from a distance. They're red and orange and white and blue, and they're hanging from the bottom of the tree, and we will find out that they are a special kind of ornament in this article, written by Diana Nolan of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Deb Siggins has found a novel, non-contact way to distribute the face masks she's making in her rural Lisbon home. She's hanging them up on a giving tree in her front yard, so passersby can stop and take what they need during the COVID-19 pandemic. The evergreen, which normally sports Christmas lights in the winter, is springing to life with a colorful array that caught the eye of Good Morning America. Someone sent the ABC program a photo of her tree, and the show called her for an interview and posted her story online April 20th. Siggins, 55, isn't divulging her address since she said it's all she can do to keep up with the demand from folks in Lisbon and Mount Vernon. So far, she's made more than 600 masks, using more than 100 yards of fabric to yield five or six masks per yard along with 1,200 elastic hairbands to hook the masks over the wearer's ears. Each mask has a pocket so users can slip in a filter, such as a piece of 0.3 micron HEPA-certified vacuum cleaner bag filters. Siggins has been making the cloth masks since about mid to late March and isn't letting up anytime soon. My theory is I'll keep doing them until the demand's not there, she said. So far, the masks disappear about as quickly as she can hang them up. She works in patient service registration at the Unity Point Clinic in Mount Vernon. When Unity Point, St. Luke's Hospital, requested homemade cloth masks to cover the N95 filters used by healthcare professionals, she jumped into action, downloading the Olsen mask pattern from Unity Point's website. A quilter, she had good quality cotton fabric on hand, and once that was gone, supplemented her supply from local fabric stores. Since hair ties are becoming increasingly hard to find, her daughter snatches them up whenever she finds them. Siggins is footing the bill, and even though the masks are free for the taking, some people have been leaving money, which she uses to buy more supplies. She's also made masks for family and friends. Her son, who is the Lisbon Fire Chief, took some for the fire and ambulance departments. I'm just doing this because I'm a giver and not a taker, she said. I think that this is a gift that God's given me to share with others and use my sewing. 
The other article on the page is written by Dick Hakes. It's a special to Iowa City Press Citizen, and the title, Iowa City's Chinese Community Lends a Hand During Pandemic. Last year, the Iowa City Chinese Association took a bold step. Since its founding in 2007, it had been a private social club for members only, the main purpose being to celebrate the Chinese New Year. But as folks settled in over the years, there was a growing realization that we should not dwell in the mindset that we are mere visitors living in a foreign land, its current president, Yaling Yi, told me. We had now become part of the community and wanted to interact more and welcome non-Chinese descent folks to our events, she said. So in 2019, we made the switch from a social club to a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We welcome anyone, regardless of national origin. The move was a timely one considering this year's COVID-19 pandemic. For one thing, with its more open status, the association and its more than 800 members and friends could more easily join hands with the many other local nonprofits offering assistance. It quickly raised $13,000 to establish a coronavirus emergency response fund and donated thousands of medical masks and other PPE to University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. It has provided 700 meals so far to homeless shelters and frontline medical staff, plus supported other local agencies in need. It created web pages at ICACAC, okay, let me get that right, ICACA.info slash combat hyphen COVID-19 and continues to offer support in many other ways. In the meantime, the local Chinese community did what everybody else was doing, staying home, sewing masks, and 3D printing ear guards, I think that must be face guards, for essential workers practicing social distancing and trying to support local businesses, including the Chinese restaurants close to their hearts. The pandemic is hitting Chinese restaurant owners hard, Yeling says. Not only the lack of customers, But I have heard some of the providers from Chicago have stopped running some trips to Iowa City. What she has not heard from her members, she says, are reports during the pandemic of elevated racial discrimination against people of Chinese ancestry. She is candid and philosophical about this. I personally think that we should not presume that whatever rudeness we encounter in the community stems from racism, Yaling told me. There are always rude people having a bad day. Having lived in Iowa 16 years, my personal experience is that this is an incredibly welcoming community, and I believe many, if not most, of our members feel the same way. We feel a part of this community, and that is why we want to help when it is in crisis. Yeling grew up in Harbin, China, and came to Iowa City in 2004. She works as a research specialist at the University of, University of Iowa's Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology. She says most members of the association are residents of the area, some of them for several decades. They include American citizens, legal residents, and some on visas, she said. There are also some university students involved, but they are served by their own organization on campus. Most of our local members have relatives living in China, she said. A couple of our members are from the Wuhan area and have relatives and friends there. She said that caused the local Chinese community to become concerned about the virus early on. That's probably why people saw us wearing masks first, 
because others starting doing so, she said, explaining that there is also a cultural element to mask wearing. Yaling agrees that opening up to the general public last year was a positive move. A wider group began attending the association's various special events, which includes performing arts professionals and local amateurs showcasing Chinese culture, music, and dance. Its young artists won honors in last summer's Rock the Chalk Sidewalk Art Contest. February's New Year's extravaganza drew its biggest crowd ever, with nearly 100 performers and 300 in the audience. Those types of events are now on hold, like so many others. But Yeling says her group will soldier on, determined to follow the mission statement it adopted when it reorganized last year. In a nutshell, its goals are to build a cohesive, supportive, and vibrant local community, to offer cultural events to, cultural events to all, to connect newcomers to long-term residents, to promote adaptation and assimilation, and to help locals of Chinese descent have their voices heard and become active participants in the community. Elected last year as its president, Yeling finds these goals to be exciting to work toward and is determined to not let the pandemic hinder the transition. I have connected with many people who were not previously involved with organizations, he said. And we saw so many new faces at our Chinese New Year Gala in February. It was a blast. The author of this story, Dick Hakes of North Liberty, is a semi-retired newspaper editor. Looking now at the USA Today, here is a story from the tech section. 5G could be your new home broadband. Fixed wireless service may help rural areas. This is a special to the USA Today from Bob O'Donnell. If we've learned nothing from our extended stays at home for the last few months, it is that a good, high-speed connection to the Internet is critical. Whether for work, school, entertainment, or information, broadband Internet has arguably become an essential utility that everyone in America should have an affordable right to access. At present, the vast majority of us received that high-speed Internet via a wired connection, such as cable or fiber optic from an internet service provider, such as Comcast Charter or AT&T. While those networks have proven to be remarkably resilient during these challenging times, they aren't always available in many rural areas. Plus, for many consumers, they represent the only choice for a given region, limiting options in choosing providers. An obvious solution to those limitations would be to receive your internet connection via a wireless connection. In fact, satellite-based internet service from companies such as Hughes used to be a big deal, and even now there are remarkably large are a remarkably large number of companies that offer something called fixed wireless internet service. Fixed wireless is considered a last-mile technology, meaning it provides the connection along the hypothetical last mile between a main internet connection hub and your home. It does so by broadcasting a signal from a tower that's connected to the main hub toward an antenna that you install on your roof. What it doesn't do, in most cases, is use the cellular networks we use for our smartphones. With the growing use of 5G wireless networks, however, that will start to change. Already, Verizon has launched a service called 5G Home in parts of five cities, Los Angeles, Sacramento, California, Houston, Indianapolis, and Chicago. 
The service uses the same millimeter wave-based 5G network the company has started to deploy for 5G smartphones in order to bring high-speed wireless internet to your home. T-Mobile has committed to introducing a similar 5G fixed wireless service in the future. In many cases, what's nice about Verizon's 5G home is that it doesn't require the installation of an antenna on your roof. For the locations that don't require an antenna, the company can send you a self-install kit. The roughly 8-inch tall receiver splits in two and attaches to both the inside and outside of a window in your home and plugs into a power outlet. The receiver, in turn, connects to a bundled Wi-Fi router and, optionally, some Wi-Fi extenders to create a Wi-Fi mesh network. You then use a simple app on your smartphone to walk through the process of setting up the new internet service and home wireless network on your own. One of the big improvements of 5G home service is that it offers speeds that closely match the fastest options that cable modem-based internet services have to offer. Peak speeds of up to 1 gigabyte per second and average speeds of around 300 megabytes per second. Given that many broadband connections average only about 25 to 30 megabytes per second, that translates to a noticeable 10 to 12 times improvement. That means simultaneously streaming several HD or even 4K streams, along with gaming and regular browsing by multiple family members, won't be a problem. With smartphones, millimeter wave 5G signals don't travel far which means Verizon has to install a lot more towers or signal transmitting points to cover a given area than is necessary with other types of 5G signals. That, in turn, means the build-out of the service to other cities is going to take a while. However, there are a few critical differences between how millimeter-wave 5G works for fixed wireless service than it does for smartphones, all of which improve the range of millimeter-wave for broadband applications. First, because the receiver device you install at home is plugged into an outlet, it can use more power than a battery-powered smartphone. The practical benefit is that allows the device to pick up the signals from further distances. Second, because the position of the transmitting towers and receivers aren't moving, they're fixed after all, a pair of 5G-related technologies called Massive MIMO, multiple input, multiple output, and beamforming, can send a tightly focused beam of signal from the tower to the receiver, and that also helps to improve the range of 5G millimeter wave. So instead of only being able to cover the area equivalent to the size of a city block from a given transmitter, millimeter wave for fixed applications can reach over a mile. In contrast, T-Mobile's planned 5G fixed wireless service will likely use the same low band and mid band 5G signals that it's been using for most of its 5G smartphone network. The benefit is that these signals travel further still, which means the network requires fewer transmitters and it can reach much further into less populated regions. In addition, these signals don't require a direct line of sight to a tower and can pass through windows and walls, making external antennas or other receivers unnecessary. The downside, however, is that the speeds are not as fast. We won't know for sure what the capabilities of any T-Mobile service will be until it's launched, but the trade-off of speed versus convenience is something consumers will likely have to consider. Ultimately, 
5G fixed wireless should prove to be an attractive option for consumers in urban areas who want an alternative to cable or other choices. In rural parts of the U.S., 5G fixed wireless services could be a godsend because of the extremely limited or even completely lacking options they have now. We're still a bit early, but there's little doubt that 5G is going to become an interesting new entry in the choice for home broadband internet connections. And here's a fun little story from the USA Today's Live section. It's written by Aaron Jensen. The title, Jokes Are Antiviral Medicine. Laughter can be found even during a pandemic. Knock, knock. Who's there? No one, because we're isolating. Ah. The coronavirus pandemic and its deadly wake are no laughing matter. But there are plenty who are finding punchlines amid the pandemic. Seriously, did you think when the bleep hit the fan, you'd be wondering if you could spare the toilet paper to clean it? Comedians Norm MacDonald and Patton Oswalt tried to bring levity to the situation weeks ago. Remember the good old days when washing your hands didn't take three hours? MacDonald inquired at the Hollywood Improv on March 13th. Oswalt delivered stand-up in a video shared to Twitter March 16th. All right, folks, thanks for staying in tonight, he said. This is COVID-19, I tell ya. I didn't see COVID-1 through 18, though, so I don't really know what this is all about. Stand-up comic and author Cameron Esposito also has been inspired by the crisis. Doctors think my girlfriend has COVID-19, and this has really progressed our relationship, she joked in a clip shared to Instagram Sunday. I mean, we're sleeping in separate beds, something usually reserved for marriage. This is the dumbest joke in the world, Esposito tells USA Today, but it made me laugh. The funny lady feels it's always okay to laugh, even now. She suggests comedians stick to, quote, talking about your own life and your relationship to the topic, end quote, and believes they can get into trouble when they're talking about something they have no personal knowledge of. For her, determining what's off-limits is more about cruelty, not whether or not the topic can be funny at all. Peter McGraw, behavioral economist and director of the Humor Research Lab at the University of Colorado Boulder, agrees that sensitivity should be exercised. It's easy to make jokes about getting to the end of Netflix because you're quarantined. It's another thing to make jokes about a lack of respirators, he says. McGraw says while there is some mild physical benefit to laughing, it's the positive emotions that humor triggers that do us good because they're incredibly important for our health and well-being. Happy feelings can help our immune system thrive, he says. Plus, it's actually easier to solve problems when you're in a positive mood. Maybe, most importantly, laughter can help decrease fear. McGraw references the benign violation theory to explain how joking about the coronavirus pandemic can be beneficial. The theory describes a violation as anything that threatens one's beliefs about how the world should be. In order for a violation to become humorous, it needs to be viewed as not harmful. So when you turn tragedy into comedy, you actually make it less of a tragedy, he says. Esposito, who spoke about her sexual assault in her 2018 special, Rape Jokes, sees comedy as a type of aid, not a cure. I don't know that it's ever about getting over tragedy, because I don't actually think humor can do that, she says. I think everybody has to heal in their own way. I think humor is about keeping going. 
And then there's the final quote joke. And here's a short Royals report regarding Duchess Kate. The Duchess of Cambridge wants those who have welcomed new babies amid the coronavirus pandemic to know they aren't alone. In a series of video calls, the mother of three spoke with parents, healthcare workers, and other industry experts ahead of the UK's Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week, which is May 4th through 10th. After speaking with several mothers, Kate said they were all going through the same thing, the worrying they're the only ones with the experience. You should actually be able to share it in whatever way, whether it's on the phone, through social media, in any form, Kate said, noting that revealing those concerns goes a long way toward normalizing some of those anxieties and these worries. That brings us to time for Dear Abby and the headline, Weight Loss Frees Woman from Mind-Numbing Meds. There is one letter to Dear to Abby. It says, Dear Abby, I had weight loss surgery a year ago. I'm now off all medications, high blood pressure, antidepressants, etc., and take only one multivitamin daily. I feel like I'm 25 again. However, I have also changed mentally. After many years of being a zombie on antidepressants, I feel like I have finally awakened. I come from a dysfunctional childhood. My father abused my mother. I was diagnosed with dysthemia years ago, and I feel like the diagnosis was correct. I now feel my dysthemia has turned more into anxiety than depression. I'm no longer afraid of speaking up, and after 20 years, I actually have opinions of my own. Needless to say, my family, husband, grown children, and in-laws are not used to this side of me. I find myself feeling resentful, anxious, and envious of certain immediately family and in-law family dynamics now. I don't want to upset my family by being so vocal and opinionated, but I don't want to get back on mind-altering prescriptions either. I also have little faith that counseling will do much good. I'm afraid I'll be pushed into taking meds again. Any advice? Signed, a tough spot in North Carolina. Abby says, dear tough spot, you have made major changes in your life and you are no longer the person you were when you were prescribed the medications that made you feel like a zombie. A mental health professional can help you to sort out whether you have a problem or whether your family members do in dealing with the new you. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Des Moines Register for Monday, May 4th, 2020. You can hear this show again at 6 p.m. and at 1 a.m. Recordings are available on our website, iowaradioreading.org. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of Iowans who are print disabled. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call at 515-243-6833. You can also call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa, 1-877-404-4747. Once again, we want you to know that our program schedule has changed so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m., seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. 
The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m. seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. And finally, the Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with this schedule until further notice. I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan. It's been a pleasure to read for you today. Stay tuned for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. And thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.